Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavo, who will discuss adoption and development. Dr. Pavo was the founder and CEO of the Center for Family Connections in Cambridge and New York, founder and director of Riverside After Adoption Consulting and Training, pre-post-adoption consulting and training, and all adoption consulting and training. Dr. Pavo has done extensive training both nationally and internationally. She is a lecturer in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and she has consulted to various public and private child welfare agencies, adoption agencies, schools, and community groups, as well as probate and family court judges, lawyers, and clergy. Additionally, she has worked closely with individuals and families touched by adoption, foster care, and other complex blended family constructions. And now your host, Karen Dola Buckwalter. Well, hello everyone. I am happy to be back here on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. And I'm very excited about the guests that I have with me here today. Um, I have Dr. Joyce McGuire Pavo, and she has a wealth of experience in terms of uh, working in the area of adoption. She has a training program for adoption um, competency for therapists. She has a well-known book, um, The Family of Adoption, that we might uh, mention again at the end of the podcast, Um, and just has done so many things from lecturing to teaching um, to, you know, directly working with families. And so, um, hello, um, Dr. Pavo, and thank you so much for being here. Hi, Karen. It's my pleasure. Yes. So, um... Uh, one of the things that, you know, I noticed that you're writing about among many things, um, but this idea of the normative crisis in the development of an adoptive family. And, you know, I was sharing with you before we started that I think sometimes we miss what's normative and sometimes are too quick to thinking there's a problem or, or pathologizing children and, or, just really not understanding there's some normal developmental cycles um, that that happen in adoption. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your thoughts in that arena. Sure. Um, actually, it was about 40 years ago when I was at Harvard University doing my research and my work. And um, I was lucky enough to have Eric Erickson as one of my professors. And, wow. And so that was pretty wonderful. And he also was having hearing problems at that stage of his life. And so he would only do very small seminars with six to eight people. And so I was very, very fortunate to have him and to study with him. And I kept saying to him, Professor, Professor, you're the father of identity. And he said, Joyce, I'm the father of identity confusion. He had never met or found his birth father. So a lot of his work was about figuring out himself based on the lack of information that he had. Oh, how interesting. 
So I was making adoption. I'm adopted myself, and I realized growing up that no one paid any attention to it or knew anything about it. And I, I grew up, I was born in 46, grew up in the 50s and 60s, and it was just not even a thing. Even when I was at Harvard, people would say, um, you know, there is no psychology of adoption, Joyce. And I would say, I beg to differ. There certainly is. It's a, it is a very different developmental process. And so I focused on adolescent uh, issues for one of my degrees there. And, um, and this normative crisis uh, was something important to me because of the work I was doing. I was starting clinics at the same time that specifically worked with adoption and foster care, kinship care, guardianship, other complex blended families. And it seemed to me that there were a list of things that were typical. I don't like to use the word normal, but they were typical. And then there were things that were typical under the circumstances of adoption. And, um, and, and then there were things that were not, that were off the chart and needed attention and were more pathologized in many ways. But it was true that people were sort of pathologizing some of the things that were normal under the circumstances. And it was something I wanted to really shed a light on and deal with. So a lot of the treatment and training programs that I developed were developed to um, destigmatize and to help people to understand what the differences were and what the strategies might be under those circumstances as well. I, I have a chart I can send to you, Karen, too, so you can, you can, you know, use that as you will. Oh, wonderful. Yes. And, and I understand too, that you continue to lecture in psychiatry at Harvard. Um, you know, such an illustrious background and resume you carry. So wonderful how you've gotten this work uh, and this information out in so many different places. Well, the funny thing is I live in Cambridge and um, I didn't want to move. So I wanted to go to Harvard. <laughs> So luckily I got accepted and I did two masters and a double doctorate there. So I kept going to school. And so what are the, tell me what those all are. I, I saw some of it on your CV. I have one, one master's from Harvard in human development and I have another master's from Antioch in uh, family therapy and cross cultural counseling. And then I have a double doctorate in human development and in counseling and consulting psychology which Harvard no longer offers, but back then it was. Yes, fun. yes, yeah. So, yeah, it's, and, you know, it was really for convenience and because obviously it's a good school. Mm -hmm. um, but the extra bonus is that people really didn't see adoption as a specialty and they really didn't take it seriously in terms of, the, the issues and, and challenges that adopted parents, adopted people, and birth parents were experiencing. So having a Harvard degree, um, having the research, having the support to talk about this, and then being on the faculty at the medical school, um, really gives it some clout. And, you know, I, I don't think it needs that much anymore. People do get it now. But back in the beginning, when I was doing this work in the 70s and the 80s, really, um, even family therapy was new. People didn't take a lot of things very seriously. And it was, it had more impact if it came from a renowned 
university. So, yes, yes, and um, it's it's uh, it has come a long way, um, but I think it has a ways to go also. I find that, you know, it took, as, as I was beginning to do this work, I, I started in a foster care program one year post-master's in a high-level foster care program, treatment foster care, and I sort of felt like I didn't even know what hit me with the, the degree of difficulty kids were having, and then looking at um, permanency and moving kids to adoption, and I started to realize, well, well, now wait a minute. Adoption's just a whole other area in and of itself, separate from attachment, trauma, you know, these other things that I may be focusing on, and just just really understanding that and the and the life cycle of adoption. Um, I I feel like some people, you know, they work with a few adopted children and then they decide to hang out on their shingle. You know, I work with adoption and. Um, I, so I, I recognize I had a lot to learn and I still have a lot to learn and I just really appreciate your voice about this and letting people know that this is a, this is a specific area of understanding and expertise in and of itself, aside from other issues you may be looking at. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm in the middle of writing a book, uh, that is for professionals as well as for parents. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's sort of an overview of what you need to know. And it's also a, a bit about how to find an adoption competent therapist. Um, because just as you said, there are a lot of people who say, oh, I've worked with adopted people, so um, I'm an adoption therapist. But it's like people who used to say, I'm a family therapist, if they sat with a family. There's a lot of underpinnings, and I mean, family therapy is based on engineering. There's a lot that you need to understand about the family if you're working with the family, and it isn't just sitting with the family. In the same way, adoption is very complex, and there are so many aspects to the whole constellation of adoption that it, someone needs to have an array of understanding and knowledge to be able to say their adoption confidence. Yes, yes. And, you know, something too I'd be interested in your thoughts on, you know, you said, you know, typical, you know, what, what are some of the typical stages of this? And um, where, 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 what do you see are some of those typical stages? And, and how can we have that balance between, we don't want to, impose or assume difficulties that aren't there while at the same time we want to honor the importance of this is this is a different way of forming a family um talk to me a little bit about that balance and and how you think that should be handled such a big question so i i'm just going to give a little tiny example because this is a whole course um but for instance you're uh, most interested in attachment and um, so when you think of uh, the zero to two-year-old, we're, we're not always doing infant adoptions. A lot of kids are older child adoptions, but they may have started being in, in moves and changes and orphanages or foster care well before they ended up in their permanent placement. Um, but when you think about little tiny infants to toddlers and you think about what happens typically 
for infants and toddlers in a family, even a family that has some dysfunction and some issues, what family doesn't? Right. Then you take a child that is, um, you know, vulnerable because they've been moved, because they've been placed, because they've been cared for by many people, because eventually they were removed for care and protection and placed in a, a foster family. <clears throat> and, and those children who go through all those moves, of course, they would have an anxious attachment. You, you, there would be no way that that child would feel completely secure and safe after the experience they've had. But one of the problems I have with some of the attachment ideas is that it's, it's almost like, it's almost like, how to describe it? Blaming the victim in some way, because it, it takes two to tango and this child didn't get attachment issues by themselves. It's because of all the moves and the agencies and the families they were with are part of the attachment problem. Um, what I think we might learn from that is that it's normal for these children to have a difficult and anxious attachment. So why aren't we spending more time training and working with the family they're going to, to understand this and to have some skills and some strategies to develop a more secure attachment going forward. And we really don't. When we're placing an infant, the adopting parents are usually just dying to have their family together. They've waited so long to build a family. And um, they've had lovely relationships with nieces and nephews and kids. And they get this baby and they expect this baby to be snuggly-wuggly, sweet and loving. And this baby doesn't trust. Why would this baby trust anyone? And this baby may push them away, may look aside. And that attachment is incredibly important because that's the beginning of a dance that isn't going to do anyone any good. And if we were paying more attention to developing uh, you know, to really saying this child, your, your job, your first job as a parent of this child is to help this child to feel secure and to understand. And you're not going to be their favorite person yet. And, um, and that's going to be hard because you've waited so long to have a child in your family. And this child is not the child that's going to be very loving yet. It will take time. This is a relationship. Um, and the, you know, it's even children who you carry in utero and give birth to may not be the most, well, we all know this, but I think it's, it's more obvious and difficult. And I don't think the adults are prepared well enough to realize this. And it ends up pathologizing the child more to save the, to save face for the adult. Mm -hmm. I think that's a problem that we've created, the professionals who are involved, and that it's really our duty to um, have a different approach to this and to really help with that attachment process. And of course, it would be different at different stages of development. Mm -hmm. Even just from the very beginning, there's always mm -hmm. something going on. Yes, yes, I think that if... So many families that I work with will say, ah, oh, if only I had this information, you know, 
when we first adopted or you know if only someone had explained this to me or I kind of instinctually thought I should do this but then you know I was reading other things that that said not to it's, it's just it's very unfortunate I also have a particular interest in the adult attachment interview and looking at the overlay of adult attachment classification and I think you know, we see with Mary Dozier's work and others, like that has an impact too. You know, how, how what is gonna come more naturally to some adoptive parents as opposed to some others? And, and how can we also be sensitive to that piece? Because as you said, it, it, it's a dance and it's a dyad doing something together um, and you know, needing to look at both of those things, I, I just think is so important as you're saying. Yeah, I agree. So that's just one. I mean, there's so many different things we could talk about that, uh, you know, that yes. slow down and look at. And um, yes, so I, I will send you the chart I made for the Department of Mental Health, which lists from zero to 18, what the stages are, what's normal, what's normal under the circumstances of adoption, and then strategies for dealing with the adopted child. Mm -hmm. There is, you know, it's a different process and it's mm -hmm. not it's what it is it's real and it's because of circumstances it's not necessarily a genetic problem with the child it's not necessarily a problem at all it's um it's really just what it is mm -hmm. you know this is a funny comment but um i started to notice and you know I, i've worked for 45 years with this population specifically and over the years, I noticed that almost all of the children from Central America and Latin America had auditory processing problems. And um, if that many people in a cohort have a problem, it's not a problem. It's normal. Wow, that's such, wow. That's, so, a par that's a powerful comment. It really is. And so we know now that children are picking up language in utero that they're picking up the patterns of speech and everything. And it, it's quite possible, I'm not, I haven't done research on this, but it, it, more people are doing research on it, which I'm glad I, I've been yelling about it for years and trying to find someone to take it on. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it's really important to know because so many of those kids are categorized as learning disabled. When in fact, if that many people have that, it's a teaching disability not to acknowledge it and to figure out how to teach to someone who has a different style of learning, a different style of taking things in. Yes. You know, it's just another thing that I think is, needs to be normalized and not seen as a pathology or a problem. Mm hmm Well, I think um, that also, you know, makes me think about, um, you know, within adoption, there's also big differences in international adoption and domestic adoption and adopted out of foster care and adopted from various different countries and some that are fostered for a while and then they're in an orphanage. I mean, there, there's just so many different dynamics. I think that that was another thing that I started to realize. You know, I had been used to working in the child welfare system and as I got more expertise, um, you know, began seeing um, children who had been adopted internationally, I was like, well, my goodness, 
this is all another whole set of things that are different, that look different, that feel different, that um, show up differently, that I have to try to start to understand. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, there are un underlying things that are the same. Forever. Yes. And you know, the loss and uh, the trauma, you know, that goes with that loss and then then cumulative trauma that they may have experienced in various settings. And, you know, so all of that is a part of, of what's going on. And then the person's personality, disposition, genetics uh, adds into that. And then the, the you know, nurture, the, the family they're in and what's happening, all of those are ingredients that, um, you know, make or break someone along the way. And, mm -hmm. um, when we say, people come to me all the time and say, oh, you know, I, I just had a new family that were referred by a school, a private school. And um, they came and said, well, we didn't really think adoption was part of the problem and nor did our therapist, um, but the school thinks it is. And um, they want us to come and see you. And, you know, what I always explain to people is it's really not about adoption per se. It's about what happened to lead to adoption. And mm. what we don't know about the experience, even the bodily experience of a child in utero and an infant. And, you know, we used to think, oh, you know, they were a year and a half when they were adopted. They don't remember anything, they'll be fine. Um, but, you know, as Bessel van der Kolk says, the body remembers. And of course they do remember. And those are the triggers and things that are upsetting to them that we can't really identify and we may mm -hmm. never will but it's so important that we realize that there are issues and foundational problems that are a result of what happened before the adoption there may be other things that happened maybe the adoption wasn't fabulous some adoptive families are amazing and some of them are totally dysfunctional so a little bit of everything in every situation. But it really isn't necessarily about adoption. When we use that word, it means so much. And we need to understand that, um, you know, how are we talking about the whole picture to the child? How are they making meaning of who they are and how they got here? Mm -hmm. Understanding developmentally as they get older. And some people talk once about adoption, then they never bring it up again. Um, and, and kids don't want to bring something up that's going to be difficult, but they need to be working on it and, and growing with it and understanding it in certain ways. And if people aren't given the supports and coaching to do that, um, it, it may end up uh, causing more challenges. This little boy I just mentioned um, is having huge problems at school. He's younger, as most adoptees are, he's younger emotionally than he is chronologically. Mm -hmm. and he's, he's 11 and he's at an age where his cohort, they're getting mature and they're, they're understanding things on another level and he's really not. And a lot of it has to do with what he doesn't know about mm -hmm. the issues, the, the secrecy around adoption. And even when it's not secrecy, the parents are only telling what they know. They're not keeping secrets. But people have kept secrets, and mm -hmm. people aren't giving them, uh, you know, what they need to know to grow on. So all of that yes, yes, and I think that um, 
You know, I, I love Sherry Eldridge's book, 20 Things Adopted Children Wish Their Parents Knew. And some of this um, literature about, you know, parents needing to be proactive about opening space for these kind of discussions. I think, you know, it's difficult often for the adoptee for lots of reasons that, like you said, that could be a whole other talk. Um, and I think somehow we have the idea, well, if they're not bringing it up, I shouldn't bring it up. So let's just nobody bring it up. Um, and, and I'm really trying to, to help people understand that that's not the case and um, to, to open dialogue about that. And, and if, if, if the child doesn't want to dialogue, well, that's okay too, but open dialogue. And I think the other thing that crossed my mind when you were just talking about, you know, a, a family that is sharing the information they have, I've, I've also now had an opportunity to speak with other adult adoptees who have shared with me, you know, they could really tell, even though there was supposed to be kind of an openness about this, that non-verbally they would get different signs from their parents that, no, I really don't want to talk about this. So, so verbally they would hear one thing and, and they were very hypersensitive to that, you know, in, in terms of um, wanting that connection and, and their own issues of not wanting to be rejected. So I think that's also a piece in there where maybe we think it's being talked about, but, you know, it is the real safety that is needed to talk about it at a deeper level. You know, I, I once had a federal grant to look at transracial adoptions. And so I gathered a focus group of people who are from 25 to 50 years old who had been adopted transracially. And I did that specifically because I wanted them to be old enough to reflect on their adolescence. Not that 25 is old enough, but maybe 50 is. Um, and, to, and to really think about this. It was a really interesting focus group. And at the end of it, these people, there were 15 people in the group, and they didn't want to leave. They mm -hmm. were talking about things they'd never talked about. Some mm -hmm. of them, so one of them said, not only have I never talked about this, I've never thought about it. And that's astounding. So they ended up starting a group. We gave them some space and uh, you know, one of our interns jumped in and, and was there for them. And it was interesting, maybe the third or fourth meeting that they had, they came back and they all had gone and either called or wrote to or went to see their parents, their adopted parents, and asked them, why did we never talk about adoption? And more importantly, why did we never talk about race? And across the board, the parents answered the same thing because you didn't ask. Mm. You didn't talk about it because you didn't ask. And it's not the job of a child to steer conversations that are difficult. It's the job of the parent. Mm -hmm. Whenever I, I give talks to parents, I really try to help them to see how important it is that they keep that dialogue happening, even though it's very hard, even though it's not their favorite thing, even though it's, it's going to be difficult and there may be a resistance to it. It's, it's pretty essential. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know we're winding down here, but I have to just say something about this transracial adoption piece and, and hear from you about it because I feel like this is just getting so 
big and there, there's things going on in the culture that are impacting this, but I would say in the last year, based on reading I've done and um, people that are adults who are adopted transracially, I feel like I thought I understood this. I did not understand this. Um, it's not cultural diversity. It's not, you know, taking your child to the adoption group that's, you know, celebrating some special holiday related to their culture. It's about what does it mean to be my race in America, you know, and, and, and so much deeper than what I really understood. So I think that conversation, even as a professional in this field who sort of thought I got it, I'm feeling as I'm learning more, I only got it on a superficial level. Um, and so I, I, I think it's the same in, in some of the families that I'm working with that, that maybe they're not getting this in a deep way. What, what are any thoughts or comments you have about that? Oh yeah, I don't think you can. I don't think you can walk in someone else's shoes. And so that it's a very different experience for people who are transracially or internationally adopted. And um, I don't think that people have understood that enough. We are at a moment in time where we have some really brilliant and influential adult adoptees who uh, are internationally adopted or transracially adopted or both. And they are speaking out, and it's their voice that's extremely important. Back in the day, when you know I was, you know, a pioneer doing this work, I had to speak out for all of us. But I didn't really know the depths of their experience. I certainly saw what the results were, and I was aware of some things we weren't doing right. But it was it was their experience, and. Luckily, at this point in time, we have their voice. And I, I think we really have to listen, even though it's hard. It's very hard for um, many of us. It's very hard for people who are white to hear some of the experiences of people of different races. And, yes. And I think it's extremely hard if you're the parent and you're, you know, you've done what you feel you could and there's a way you feel maybe attacked by this and yet it's a reality and it's it is certainly in this day and age we see the the schisms and what's going on with society at large and so we certainly see that for kids who don't have the support of of a whole community of color it sometimes really leaves them very lonely and very separated and very confused. Their identity confusion is even more profound than that. Yes. Race adoption. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think the word identity that that that, that it's that big. Like this is this is not just like an add-on. Like this is someone's identity. You know. Um, so, yeah, yeah. You're not going on vacation and you're not going for your junior year abroad. This is your life. Right, it's right. Realize how, how intense that is. Yes, yes. Yeah. 
Well, you know, this has been a great discussion. I feel like I could speak with you for hours. Um, you just have such a, a wealth of experience and um, knowledge to share. I'm just really honored that, that you gave me this time. Um, so I want to thank you for that. Um, and also, you know, where, where can people find information about your training, your consultation, maybe share about your website and good, good way to find your book? Yeah, I think um, my website is a disaster. I, I'm about to get it revamped a bit. Um, it's always good to just email me. My email is k-i-n-n-e-c-t, connect at gmail.com. Okay. I can then put you to my Facebook page or put you to my, uh, you know, newly renovated, hopefully, website. Um, and you know, I can, I can, you know, certainly get you some resources or whatever. I, I plan to send you the ages and stages document. After Excellent. Yes. And, um, I'm more than happy to, uh, whatever we can do to expand the knowledge about this area and really, um, non-pathologizing ways to support families. Yes. Yes. Well, again, thank you so much and uh, look forward to some of that follow-up information from you and um, appreciate all the knowledge and wisdom you've shared with our listeners today. So thank you. Thank you, Karen. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.